Hi everybody, just a quick disclaimer here. Uh, this episode has some descriptions of some pretty distressing things in it, so it may not be suitable for everyone. What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. We're joined once again by Lee, who is such an incredible spokesperson for the Palestinian cause. Um, She's actually married to a Palestinian man, and she is a civil engineer who uses so much of her free time to spread the word about the human rights atrocities being committed by apartheid Israel against the Palestinian people. I love her approach to talking about this issue because she shows the conflict in such a fair light that really focuses on human rights and our shared humanity. Hi, Lee. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Erica? I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I'm trying to buckle in and, and get ready for this next one because I know it's going to be heavy as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so heavy. Everyone, I hope you have tissue boxes nearby. Yeah. Your souls are going to hurt. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Your souls are going to hurt is a pretty good way to say that. Damn it. (laughs) And like, we don't even have uh, alcohol to like ease the blow of this episode because we're, we're abstaining in solidarity with the Palestinian people today. So just drinking some tea and sparkling water and... Arabic coffee here. Oh, nice. Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) We're basically abstaining because the Palestinian people are majority Muslim, over 85% Muslim, with the remainder being Jewish and Christian. And people of the Muslim faith typically do do not drink alcohol. So to stand in solidarity with the Palestinians, especially while we're talking about such a incredibly bleak and and brutal chapter in their history, we thought it would be mo- most appropriate just to forego the cocktail for this one. I'm sure a lot of you are wondering about the connection to capitalism. And this is something that, you know, we've, we've, we've touched on just briefly before when we referenced the amount of money that's going in U.S. tax dollars to fund apartheid Israel and the atrocities that they're committing. Um, There's a lot of U.S. companies that are benefiting from this kind of economic and political alliance that we have with Israel. There's a lot there that we are going to be diving into a little more deeply in the next episode. So, But we want you to understand the the full story here that's underlying this so you can have a really good grasp of this crisis. All right. Are you guys ready? As ready as I'll ever be for this kind of shit. (laughs) My soul is already like crushing in on itself. Yeah. (laughs) All right. The story of Palestine that we're about to tell is one of atrocity. It's one of massacre. It's one of genocide and continued ethnic cleansing at the hands of an occupation that dehumanizes the Palestinian people. It's a story of broken hearts, broken families, broken dreams, but most importantly, it's the story of resistance. Ooh. Damn, yeah, I'm getting chills. <laughs> Although we are going to be telling the story of Palestine and the atrocities committed by Israel against the Palestinian people, this story 
is also a story of defiance, a story of resistance, a story of the water finding its way through the cracks undefeated. (laughs) So cool. What you're about to hear will break your heart over and over. What you're about to hear may feel soul-crushing, but understand the story of Palestine is not over yet. The story of Palestine cannot be crushed by bulldozers and bullets. It cannot be crushed by apartheid and airstrikes. Because the story of Palestine lives in every Palestinian refugee. The story of Palestine lives in the hearts of the children of the refugees. The story of Palestine sings with every Palestinian who is in occupied Palestine, resisting the oppression and the occupation of Israel. And now the story of Palestine is with you and with me and with everyone we tell it to. The story of Palestine is not over yet. (laughs) Fuck. I'm like, I'm full on full body chills over here. (laughs) (laughs) I had to get that one out. Oh, yeah. So Palestine was an agricultural society. When a new conqueror would come, and Palestine was conquered a lot, so would a new landlord. So not much changed for the Palestinians that lived on the land, as the new landlord would need tenants to continue cultivating the lands, which we saw in your episode on uh, the peasant revolt. Mm. But with the arrival of Zionism, all this changed. Zionists visited the newly stolen plot of lands and encouraged the new Jewish owners to throw the indigenous Palestinian tenants out, even if the owner had no use for the, for the entire piece of land. Zionists saw the Jewish people as cowards for refusing to throw out Palestinian people out of their own homes. Oh my God. So again, we're seeing the difference right away between Zionism and Judaism. So a quick summary to the last episode, Zionism and Judaism are not the same and they cannot coexist. Judaism is a peaceful, beautiful religion that is thousands of years old, one of the oldest religions, whereas Zionism has only existed for around 150 years. So Zionism was sold to the Jewish people as a way for Jewish people to be free from persecution and come to live in the Holy Land of Palestine. However, it has always been a settler colonial project used to ethnically cleanse the indigenous Palestinians from the land. Jewish people absolutely deserve to live a life free from persecution and discrimination, as do us all, but not at the expense and the genocide of an ethnic group, which is what Zionism performs. Zionism massively differentiates from Judaism as Zionism is a white supremacist, settler colonialist, anti-democratic, right-wing ideology, which demands a loyalty based on nationalist racism and the genocide of the indigenous population. Zionists manipulate Judaism for colonial and strategic reasons, similarly to how other violent regimes have used religion in order to commit their atrocities. (laughs) There are plenty of Jewish people around the world currently and previously who are standing in solidarity with the Palestinian people and against the Israeli occupation. Zionism isn't tied to a singular religion. There are Zionist Christians, Zionist Catholics, 
Zionist Muslims, Zionist atheists, and so on. The connection between these various groups is that they all want to see the Jewish people removed from their global communities and located in a singular place, the Holy Land of Palestine, for two reasons, both anti-Jewish or in <laughs> Zionist terminology, anti-Semitic. Yeah. One is to remove Jewish people from the country and move them somewhere far, far away because the community discriminates against them. The second is to enact the end of the world, a Bible prophecy where all the Jewish people in Palestine will either convert to Christianity or burn in hell for all of eternity. So Zionism calls for the ethnic cleansing and genocide of the indigenous and Semitic Palestinians. Yes, that's right. Palestinians themselves are Semitic. This is important as one of Israel's greatest tools for silencing people who are advocating for Palestinian human rights is the word anti-Semite or usually anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Not only did Erica, our cocktails and <laughs> capitalism host here, um, recently get the nearly the full force of Zionism on a post that she just posted for episode one. Yeah. How, how did that go, Erica? <laughs> Oh my God, it was insane. <laughs> and the post was actually largely about how Palestinians are themselves Semitic. All of these Zionists flooded into the comment section. I didn't realize the number of people out there just waiting to pounce on posts like this, you know, that are just looking to spout their Zionist rhetoric. And I had no idea that it was going to be so vicious and racist, like, so blatantly fucking racist. It was it was pretty impressive how Islamophobic, how anti-Arab, how like violently hostile <laughs> a lot of these comments were. So it was a wake up call. Definitely. And you've been dealing with this nonstop for a long fucking time. So. Uh. <laughs> all, all the pro-Palestinian, pro-human rights activists have been seeing the same thing. Um, we get flooded mm -hmm. all the time with this racist rhetoric. And, yeah. and these people, these Zionists, they call for the eradication in our comments, even the eradication of the Palestinian people. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. They don't mind showing their face on public forums and saying these things just outright. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and we also saw this with Emma Watson's recent post on solidarity is a verb. Uh -huh. The post simply stated solidarity is a verb over a visual of a protest where Palestinian flags were visible. That's it. Yeah. Both the former and the current Israeli ambassadors for the United Nations lashed out and accused her of being an anti-Semite. <laughs> for the UN. Like, that's that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Solidarity's a noun. <laughs> that's what you got from that, John? <laughs> Is this is if I'm gonna lash out at Emma Watson, it's for her crappy grammar. Not <laughs> actually, to Emma, if you're that. listening, it's a noun. Listen, Emma. <laughs> I, I like. I get what you're trying to do here, but we approve of this message. But uh, this the is grammar the hill is I'm just off. To die on. <laughs> um, before before we move on, what 
does it actually mean to be Semitic? Is that like a religious term? Is it an ethnic term? Like, what does that actually mean? It's actually related to languages. A member of any of the people who speak or spoke a Semitic language, including in particular the Jews and Arabs. Yeah. And Arabs, so. Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How messed up is it that it's related to language? Like, you would think that it's... An ethnic... Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. So, in response to Emma Watson's post, more than 40 Hollywood stars signed a letter in support of her following the Israeli backlash. In the letter, it stated, We join Emma Watson in our support of the simple statement that solidarity is a verb, including meaningful solidarity with Palestinians struggling for their human rights under international law. We oppose injustice anywhere in the world, and we stand with all those seeking an end to oppression. In addition, the letter cited a report by the Human Rights Watch stating Israel is committing the crimes of apartheid and persecution. Newsflash. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The letter continues. We recognize the underlying power imbalance between Israel, the occupying power, and the Palestinians, the people under a system of military occupation and apartheid. Uh, We stand against ongoing Israeli attempts to forcibly displace Palestinian families from their homes in East Jerusalem, neighborhoods of Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan, and elsewhere in the occupied Palestinian territory. Hmm. In the letter, they condemned all forms of racism, including anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. The letter continues, Opposition to a political system or policy is distinct from bigotry. Mm-hmm. hatred, and discrimination targeting any group of humans based on their identity. We see the former as a legitimate and necessary form of political and ethical expression, and the latter as racism, pure and simple. The letter concluded by quoting the late Desmond Tutu, who once said, If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Mm. The Zionist occupation has used the words anti-Semite and anti-Semitism to silence and scare and berate people who are standing against apartheid, who are standing against ethnic cleansing, and who are standing for the human rights of the Palestinian people. Mm. According to Britannica, anti-Semitism implies a discrimination against all Semites. Arabs, along with other various peoples, are also Semites. And yet, they're not the targets of anti-Semitism as it's usually understood, but the term Mm -hmm. is especially inappropriate as a label for the anti-Jewish prejudices, statements, or actions of other Arabs or other Semites. (laughs) What a good fucking point to make. Uh, Yeah. Therefore, Britannica is stating that using the term anti-Semite against Arabs and Palestinians especially Palestinians fighting for their right to exist, is a completely inappropriate word. Hmm. But we see Zionists and the occupation using this word against the Semitic Palestinians who are just fighting for their human rights. Uh. Vocabulary is important. The Zionist occupation has used vocabulary to their benefit to silence and persuade the public. Just as the definition of Zionism has changed over time, we can redefine anti-Semitism and return to the roots of the word. 
anti, against, and Semitic, all Semitic peoples, including Palestinians. Return the word to its roots to ensure that the atrocities against Palestinians are included in this definition. Mm. How do we do this? Mm -hmm. Well, we start by reminding people that when they try to claim that you are anti-Semitic for advocating for Palestinian human rights and for standing up for the oppressed people of Palestine, you can remind them that Palestinians themselves are Semitic peoples. Stating Palestinians do not deserve human rights or that they deserve to be ethnically cleansed is anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian, and anti-Semitic. The Zionist organizations have weaponized accusations of anti-Semitism and as a result has diluted the real issues of anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish discrimination. Absolutely. So Zionism was rejected by various leading Jewish rabbis, as well as Nelson Mandela and Gandhi. And Gandhi had his own problems. But the Zionist occupation mm -hmm. approached Gandhi, hoping that he would approve of the Zionist occupation of Palestine. <laughs> the difference between settling alongside the Palestinians and simply displacing them was recognized by Gandhi when he was asked by the Zionist philosopher, Martin Buber, to lend his support to the Zionist project. Hmm. Gandhi's major statement on Palestine and the Jewish question appeared in a widely circulated editorial in 1938 in the major rebellion by the indigenous Palestinians against the British government's pro-Zionist policies, the Great Arab Revolt, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. Gandhi questioned the very foundational logic of political Zionism, rejecting the idea of a Jewish state in the promised land by pointing out that the Palestine of biblical conception is not a geographical tract. Yeah, Gandhi yeah. disproved of the Zionist project for both political and religious reasons. Gandhi said, Palestine belongs to the Arabs in the same sense that England belongs to the English or France to the French. Hmm. It is wrong and inhuman to impose the Jews on the Arabs. Surely it would be a crime against humanity to reduce the proud Arabs so that Palestine can be restored to the Jews partly or wholly as their national home. Both Gandhi and Nelson Mandela suggested that the Palestinians should be asked to provide a safe haven for persecuted Jewish people alongside the indigenous people, not in place of them. Mm -hmm. But the Zionist movement regarded such proposals as heresy and thus continued their ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Again, we're just seeing like zero even desire to compromise whatsoever. It's like their way or the highway, period, always. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we see this over and over again, even with the Oslo Accords. Israel purposely would blow up negotiations and pin it on the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. So again, controlling the narrative. Yeah, that kind of blew my mind when I was reading about that. Like, holy shit. They're trying to say, yes, we'll go along with this proposal. And then when the Palestinians accept it, they're like, oh, actually, no, we were just doing that for political reasons. <laughs> like, Yeah, and that's their strategy <sighs> throughout all of history. So what is ethnic cleansing and how is it defined? Well, ethnic cleansing is a crime against humanity. 
punishable by international law, and it has been brought to the International Criminal Court, uh, Israel's ethnic cleansing of the indigenous Palestinians. Hmm. Ethnic cleansing is the expulsion by force in order to homogenize the population of a particular region or territory. The purpose of expulsion is to cause the mass evacuation and removal of as many residents as possible and by any means necessary. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. It's coming. Ethnic cleansing includes the eradication of a region's history. We saw this in the last episode with the Zionist occupation justifying the erasure of Palestinian villages through the use of the Bible. Another example is the Zionist occupation attempting to erase the name of Palestine in place of Israel in 1948. The way ethnic cleansing is supported is through legitimizing the depopulation of the residents using excuses of retribution and revenge. We see Israel legitimizing the ethnic cleansing of Palestine through the narrative of retribution and revenge. Well, you know, the Palestinians, they were in our land. We deserve that land. You know, so so we see this narrative used uh, by Israel for their ethnic cleansing of indigenous Palestinians. Mm -hmm. The end result of ethnic cleansing is the creation of refugees as seen with over 700,000 Palestinian refugees that were created during the 1948 war. This war was called the Nakba or the catastrophe by Palestinians. Let's continue into our history on Palestine. So the lead up to the Great Arab Revolt, so 1917 to, you know, 1939. The moment Balfour gave the Zionist movement his promise in 1917 to establish a national home for the Jewish people in the Holy Land of Palestine, he opened the door to an endless fight that would soon engulf the country and its people. The Ottoman Empire and the British Empire were at war for the majority of 1917 as Palestine was under the Ottoman Empire's rule when the British decided to promise the country to the Zionist occupation. So weird. Can you remind us who Balfour is? Um, So Balfour was a British foreign secretary. Who made that declaration that Palestine is going to be the home of Israel. Mm -hmm. Okay, so following the implementation of the Balfour Declaration, the Palestinian people were relieved that the hardships of the 1917 war and the Ottoman rule were finally over. The Palestinians did not like the Ottoman rule because their taxes and they had protested against the Ottoman Empire several times. Like that's a whole history on its on its own. But the Palestinians' relief was quickly diminished by the British commitments to the Zionist project in Palestine. So from the start of the 1920s, Zionists and the Palestinian people had been involved in a cycle of attacks and counterattacks. So keep in mind, violent Zionist settlers had immigrated to Palestine with the goal of hurting, killing, and committing terrorist attacks against the Palestinians. These were hateful people that dehumanized the Palestinians and wanted to take the land for themselves from the Palestinians and did not want to live alongside as a community. Yeah. And until 1928, the British government had treated Palestine as a state within the British sphere of influence, not as a British colony. Uh, It was a state that was under British guidance where there was a promise to the Zionists 
and a kind of promise to the Palestinians where they kind of were like, well, both of your desires can be fulfilled. Um, hmm. The British tried to put in place a political structure that would represent both communities on equal footing, but in practice, it wasn't equitable at all. It directly favored the Zionist colonies and discriminated against the Palestinian majority. The balance within the new proposed legislative council was in favor of the Zionist community who were to be allied with the members appointed by the British administration. So Zionists knew to make those connections with uh, the British administration, the British government. They understood and they were doing strategy right from the beginning, whereas Palestinians this entire time just wanted to live alongside people just as yeah. they always had. Why can't we just do what we've always done for the last 4,000 years? Yeah. You know? They seem almost all too ready to even accept conquerors so long as they're not trying to kill and displace them completely, you know? Exactly. And we actually see this right here where... so. Zionist leaders from the beginning understood how to manipulate the narrative and portray the Palestinian people as the aggressors. The people who were too stubborn for peace and the people who were the problem that needed to be solved. Hmm. This is how they painted the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. The Palestinians consented to allow the Zionist settlers equal representation in the government bodies of the state, even though the Arabs were the majority. <laughs> right? Uh, so generous still. Like, they're just accepting the terms that they, they don't really have to accept on a basis of pure fairness, you know? Exactly. And, and literally, even though the Zionists and Jewish settlers were a minority, the Palestinians were still ready to give them equal representation. Yeah, that's amazing. So here's, here's the hitter. The Zionist leadership was in favor of the idea of equal representation in the government because they suspected the Palestinians would reject it. <laughs> Shared representation stood against everything Zionism was supposed to be. So when the proposal was accepted by the Palestinian party, it was rejected by Zionist leaders, which led to the rise of 1929. Because they see it's just a farce, like that, that, that even that offer was a total political setup. I mean, I would be outraged and wanting to riot too. <laughs> Exactly, that Zionists accepted the offer, assuming that Palestinians were going to reject it because Zionists would never accept that. And then, yeah. and also yeah. to paint the Palestinians as um, the aggressors and too as stubborn, and they're the problem. Not, not, yeah. Exactly. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. right from the beginning, the Palestinians were willing to even completely share their country, mm -hmm. but Zionists did not want, still do not want Palestinians in the country. Yeah. Just that. Yeah. Yeah. They want the complete eradication of the Palestinian people. They want the ethnic cleansing. Yeah. It's amazing how overt that desire is. Yeah. And, and you saw that even yeah. in, in your post that got so much backlash from Zionists. Such an innocent post too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So... The Palestinian uprising in 1929 was the direct result of Britain's refusal to implement at least their promise of equality after the Palestinians had been willing to set aside the democratic principle of majoritarian politics. So mm -hmm. Arabs, 
being the majority population, they were still willing for that equal representation mm-hmm. and Zionists still rejected it. <sighs> so, But what could possibly go wrong with a political system where the minority has better representation relative <laughs> to the amount of population? We don't know uh, anything about that here in America. <laughs> yeah, like what, what? Would you have a system where like a really outspoken far-right minority could enact policies that are counter to the desires of a majority in the country? Like, I mean, that doesn't seem like it would happen. Uh, damn it. We need voting rights legislation. We're fucked. We're fucked. <laughs> it's okay. Canada's not too far behind. Oh, man. Oh, that was our, that we was... were going to escape to you, yeah. though. <laughs> Oh, we still have our problems. Damn it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, After the 1929 uprising, the Labour government in London appeared inclined to embrace the Palestinian demands. But the Zionist lobby succeeded in reorienting the British government comfortably back onto the Balfourian Zionist track, Mm. which meant that the Palestinians were being disposed of their ancestral lands in order to make way for this mass migration of Zionists, making another uprising inevitable. Mm -hmm. The Great Arab Revolt began in 1936 and was a nationalist uprising by Palestinians against the British administration, demanding Palestinian independence and the end of the policy of open-ended Zionist immigration and land purchases with the stated goal of establishing a Jewish national home and forcing the indigenous Palestinians out of their ancestral homes. This rebellion was fought with such determination by the Palestinian people that it forced the British government to station more troops in Palestine than there were in the Indian subcontinent. Oh my God, that's wild. From a political perspective, the Indian subcontinent consists of at least seven countries. India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Maldives, and Bhutan. Wow, oh my God. In a tiny little area. Because the Palestinian uprising and their resistance wow yeah amazing so the british disarmed the palestinian people from 1936 to 1939 during the great arab revolt while allowing the illegal immigration by european zionists and their procurement of and storing of weapons Hmm. so this Hmm. devastated the palestinians in future wars as the british allowed the zionists to remain armed while disarming the indigenous Palestinians. And then then they have absolutely no weapons whatsoever. So they're just faced with an occupying militarized force able to crush them at any moment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And all they wanted was a shared country. Yeah. Ah, right. After three years with brutal and ruthless attacks on the Palestinian countryside, the British military subdued the Arab revolt. The Palestinian leadership was exiled. The paramilitary units that had sustained the guerrilla warfare against the Palestinian forces were disbanded. During this process, many of the Palestinian villagers involved were arrested, wounded, or killed. The absence of most of the Palestinian leadership and of viable Palestinian fighting units gave the Zionist forces in 1947 
a clear ride into the Palestinian countryside for the war that would erupt. In addition, Palestinians having no weapons yeah. to defend themselves Ugh. against the Zionist occupation. Fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Another person who is the worst of the worst is David Ben-Gurion. He led the ethnic cleansing of uh, Palestinians in 1948, and he actually became the first prime minister of Israel. So David Ben-Gurion led the Zionist movement from the mid-1920s until well into the 1960s. He was a pragmatic colonialist as well as state builder. Gurion knew that the state could only be won by force, but he had to wait for an opportune moment in order to be able to deal militarily with the demographic reality on the ground, which is the presence of a non-Jewish indigenous majority population. Mm-hmm. Gurion was aiming much higher as he staked out the Zionist claim for the whole of Palestine. So was he just literally planning to wipe out everyone? Yeah, he was. Wow. wow. He absolutely was. Ugh. It's hard to fucking even conceive of. Ugh. The Zionist leadership was literally strategizing and planning how to eradicate the Palestinians from Palestine and take over the country. Expel them, kill them, get rid of them by any means necessary. Exactly. Before 1947... The Zionist primary mission was to build a political, economic, and cultural Zionist enclave within the country and to ensure Jewish immigration into the area. However, in February 1947, uh, the decision was made by the British cabinet to pull out of Palestine and leave it to the United Nations to solve the question of its future. The UN took nine months to deliberate the issue and then adopted the idea of partitioning the country. This was accepted by Zionist leadership, who, after all, championed the partition. They actually came up with the idea, hmm. uh, probably knowing that the Palestinians would not like wouldn't it. Wouldn't want it, yeah. This partition plan was rejected by the Arab world and the Palestinian leadership. The Palestinian leadership suggested keeping Palestine as a unitary state, and they wanted to solve this situation through a longer process of negotiation. Palestinians were against the dividing of Palestine as they wanted to live alongside the Zionists and Jewish people and work together as communities in equality instead of cutting up the country. To this day, there are Zionists who believe that the Palestinians deserve the ethnic cleansing and genocide they faced during the 1948 war because the Palestinian people didn't want to split up the country, but instead yeah. wanted to live alongside the Jewish people with equal representation. So originally the Palestinians wanted like a one state solution and Israel was promoting a two, well, not a two state solution, but like a separate. Yeah. The partitioning. Yeah. yeah. Kind of yeah, weird. Exactly. Exactly. A two state solution. Yeah, so it's always it's been the Zionist leadership that's wanted to cut up the country. Yeah, interesting. And the Palestinians just wanted equal representation. Yeah. And equality. And they probably knew that partitioning meant that they were going to be shoved into a little area that was going to be continuously eaten away by further encroachment and settlement. They probably could see how this would play out in some ways. Exactly. Exactly. 
And of course, the Zionist occupation wanted as much as Palestine as possible. So like you said, Erica, they would have tried to, to take 90% of Palestine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the partition resolution was adopted November 29th, 1947. And the ethnic cleansing of Palestine began in early December 1947 with a series of Zionist attacks on Palestinian villages and neighborhoods in retaliation for the buses and shopping centers that were vandalized by Palestinian protests against the UN resolution during the first few days after its adoption. Hmm. Zionists began ethnically cleansing Palestinians because the Palestinians, during their protest of this partition resolution, vandalized buses and shopping centers. So that was just basically their their excuse to go in and do the thing that they had already wanted to do all along. Exactly. Yeah. So these early Zionist assaults were severe enough to cause the exodus of nearly 75,000 Palestinian people. Yeah, that's so fucking hard to even conceive of. <sighs> but worse was to come as Europe prepared to compensate the Jewish people for the Holocaust. This war was raged on European soil, mm-hmm. no relation to Palestine, and the Europeans were about to give Palestine to the Zionist occupation to compensate mm-hmm. the Jewish people for the Holocaust. Yeah, wow. How does that make sense? Ugh. So Europe ignored that the creation of a state for Jewish people could only come at the expense of and the genocide of the indigenous Palestinians. Mm-hmm. The Zionist diplomats endeavored to persuade the international community that the question of who replaced Britain as the sovereign power in Palestine was associated with the fate of all Jewish people in the world. Hmm. Even more distressingly, this policy was associated with the need to compensate the Jewish people for their suffering during the Holocaust at the expense and the genocide of the indigenous Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the Nakba, we need to understand the level of strategy and planning the Zionist occupation was conducting in preparation for a war. Before 1947, the Zionist occupation was recording precise details about the topographic location of each Palestinian village, its access roads, the, the quality of land, water springs, main sources of income, socio-political composition, religious affiliations, names of its muktars or or mayors, Hmm. its relationship with other villages, the age and names of individual men, and so much more. That's so fucking creepy. Like, uh, knowing especially what they did later, the fact that they were gathering all this data about their water sources, you know, like... The exact locations, the GPS coordinates, like, ugh, it's fucking horrific. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Zionists were directed to study the basic structure of the Arab village, the structures of the houses, as well as how best to attack it. This information was directly linked to the massacre in 1948 and fueled the worst atrocities in the villages, leading to the mass executions and torture of the Palestinian people. And here's how they did it, because it's really twisted. Zionists would send in operatives into Palestinian villages to gain information of the residents and develop its list. Palestinians are just waiting to live alongside these people, Mm -hmm. not even comprehending what was about to Mm. happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
So these lists were created by these Zionist operatives. And in 1948, Zionist troops used the lists for the search and arrest operations they carried out as soon as they had occupied a village. The men in the village would be lined up and those appearing on the list would then be identified often by the same person who had informed on them in the first place. And this person would be wearing a cloth sack with like holes cut out of their, out of the sack for eyes. Right? So creepy. All right. To not be recognized. And then the Palestinian men who were picked out were often shot right on the spot. So what are these guys getting targeted for exactly? Like, why are they being informed on? So I don't know in detail. But my understanding is anyone who was against the occupation and could be a potential threat to the occupation. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's fucking brutal, but the reasoning behind why those guys would be targeted makes sense. Yeah. All right. Okay. Get your souls ready. <laughs> she's, she's got yep. the tissues close. Uh, okay. <laughs> In 1948, the Zionist leadership officially shifted its tactics from acts of retaliation to ethnic cleansing operations. Coerced expulsions followed in the middle of February 1948, when Zionist troops succeeded in emptying five Palestinian villages in one day. On the 10th of March in 1948, the Plan de was adopted. Its purpose was to uh, take control of Palestine and declare a Jewish state. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first targets were the urban centers of Palestine, which had all been occupied by the end of April. About 250,000 Palestinians were uprooted in this phase, which was accompanied by several massacres. Most notable was the Deir Yassin massacre. Do we know what, like, the population of Palestine, Israel, is at this point? Like, how many how many settlers, how many indigenous people? Okay, so as of 1946, according to the United Nations, the population of Palestine was 1.8 million, mm-hmm. with about 1 million Muslims, uh, 600,000 Jewish people, 145,000 Christians, and 15,000 others. Hmm. So this is like a quarter of the total Palestinian population that gets displaced. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, that really puts it into some perspective there. Wow. So the assault of the village of Deryasin began in the morning of April 9th, 1948, as a part of an operation to break through the blockaded road to Jerusalem, which at the time was known as Al-Quds, the Arabic name. I see. Before it was ethnically cleansed to be Jerusalem. During the massacre, 117 Palestinian villagers, including women, the elderly, and children, were slaughtered by Zionist paramilitary groups. The first-hand accounts included a report of... Take your time. This shit is so fucking heavy. Fucking brutal. Mm. The first-hand accounts included a report of a young Palestinian man. Fuck. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I got this. I got this. No, (laughs) I believe in you, Lee. (laughs) 
All right. The first-hand accounts included a report of a young Palestinian man tied to a tree and set on fire. A woman and an old man shot in the back and girls lined up against a wall and shot with a submachine gun. Some members of the perpetrators, so the Zionist par- uh, paramilitary group, were at a later mm-hmm. time absorbed into the IDF. One of these members, uh, Menashem Begin, I can't even say his name, became Prime Minister of Israel. He later stated in his book, without what was done at Dur Yassin, there would not have been a state of Israel. <sighs> to this day, Dur Yassin remains a taboo in apartheid Israel. Its history is blocked from public consciousness, and to the extent to which it is discussed, it is phrased as a debate of whether these events can qualify as a massacre. 117 <sighs> people. Like, who in their right mind can have a debate about that? You know, who who can take that kind of, um, you know, two sides kind of argument about an, a situation like this? It's absolute insanity. Ugh. I completely agree. So that was the start. And now we move into the Nakba. So the Palestinian exodus or Nakba, was the expulsion of 700,000 Palestinian Arabs from their homeland during the war and the establishment of Israel in May of 1948. So we take, we're at 700,000 Palestinians. And, And we just put that into perspective. That's like the vast majority of Palestinians then, right? That's, that's more than half. Mm hmm. So the British mandate was about to end um, because they were ready to leave Palestine. And as the end of the British mandate approached, because, you know, they had passed it on to the United Nations being like, well, you know what? Uh, the question of Palestine is no longer our problem. United Nations, this is on you. So mm-hmm. as the end of the British mandate approached, the British forces withdrew to the port of Haifa. Any territory the British forces left, the Zionist forces took over clearing out the indigenous Palestinians even before the end of the mandate. This process began in February of 1948 with a few villages and then culminated by April with the ethnic cleansing of Haifa, Jaffa, Safad, Beisan, Eker, and Western uh, Jerusalem or Al-Quds. The Zionist military's plan included the destruction of villages, setting fire to and blowing up and planting mines in the debris of whatever was left behind. Especially those population centers, which are difficult to control continuously. Zionists were mounting search and control operations according to the following guidelines. Encirclement of the village and conducting a search inside it. In the event of resistance, the armed force must be destroyed and the population must be expelled outside the borders of the state. So a lot of the times also these Palestinians weren't armed considering they had all been de-armed during the Great Arab Revolt. So prior to 1948, the activities the Zionist leadership carried out to implement their vision could still be portrayed as retaliation for hostile Palestinian or Arab actions. However, Mm -hmm. after March, this was no longer the case. So the Zionist 
leadership openly declared two months before the end of the mandate it would seek to take over the land and expel the indigenous population by force. So the uh, plan to let. So basically take over all of Palestine. And this is two months, two months before, two months before the British mandate ended. So wow. the Zionists were ready. They were ready. They were chomping at the bit to make this happen. Exactly. They had been planning and strategizing for years. And now finally, this British mandate is about to end. Great. Let's take over Palestine. The first step towards the Zionist goal of attaining as much of Palestine as possible with as few Palestinians in it as feasible was to decide what constituted as a viable state in geographical terms. Okay, so we remember Ben-Gurion from earlier. So Ben-Gurion wrote explaining that he wanted to create a military force able to both repel a potential attack from neighboring Arab states and to occupy as much of Palestine as possible, and hopefully all of it. The 1948 war was initiated by Israel in order to secure the historical opportunity to expel the Palestinians. All in all, on the eve of the 1948 war, the Zionist fighting force stood at around 50,000 troops. In May 1948, these troops could count on the assistance of a small air force and navy and on units of tanks, armored cars, and heavy artillery that accompanied them. Facing mm. them were regular paramilitary Palestinians that numbered no more than 7,000 troops, a mm. fighting force mm. that lacked all structure, all hierarchy, and was poorly compared or poorly equipped when compared to, with the Zionist forces. So we have 50,000 troops, a lot of these troops trained versus mm-hmm. 7,000 untrained. Arab troops. After they have taken away all of their weapons. <laughs> exactly. The Palestinians had no military power whatsoever. And the surrounding Arab states only sent a relatively small contingent of troops. Substantially smaller compared to the Zionist forces and far less equipped or trained than the Zionist troops were. The small quantity of Arab troops didn't stand a chance. Also, these troops were sent into Palestine not as a reaction to the declaration of the founding of the state of Israel, but because Zionists like to claim this. They, they like to claim that, oh, well, Israel was just defending itself against um, Arab troop uh, invasion. The Arab troops actually came into Palestine in a res- as a response to the Zionist operations that had already began in February 1948 and in particular in the wake of the well-publicized massacre in the village of Duryasin. Like, you ethnically cleanse an entire village, and then you are continuing on in this absolute just massacre after massacre. I'm just thinking about these people that are willing to put their lives on the line, leave their home countries to go in to protect people that are being ethnically cleansed. That's a pretty heroic journey that you're throwing yourself into a really, really heroic stance to take, which, I mean, these people are painted as, as absolute terrorists and, and terrorist Arabs, you know, so, which is too easy to do these days, but, um, uh, through a different lens, how courageous do you have to be <laughs> to take on the state of Israel? <laughs> and the highly trained military of yeah. Israel, like, Ugh. wow. And of course, David Ben-Gurion, 
So the primary national founder of the state of Israel and the first prime minister of Israel, who, you know, inflicted this ethnic cleansing against the Palestinians. He was determined to secure demographic exclusivity for the Zionist people in any future state. This was an obsession of his, which led him to orchestrate the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. The message Ben-Gurion conveyed to his generals and through them to the troops on the ground was clear. The fewer Palestinians in the Jewish state, the better. This is also why he tried to get rid of Palestinians who were left within the Jewish state after the war. And again, just mm. clearing up something. It's not a Jewish state. It's, it's a Zionist state. Hiding behind that label and that religion and everything. Weaponizing Judaism. Yes, exactly. Fuck. And this was, this was happening two years after the world, after World War II ended, right? World War II ended in 1946. And then they began ethnically cleansing um, Palestinians in 1947. And then the Nakba was 1948. God, so like, uh, to have gone through that atrocity and then immediately commit atrocity. Like, mm-hmm. such similar atrocities. How do you, you, you have to have such like cognitive dissonance going on. Like that blows my fucking mind that that can happen. <laughs> you didn't learn any lessons from the horrible things that you went through? What? <sighs> Exactly. Exactly. The British left on the 15th of May in 1948, and the Zionist agency immediately declared the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, officially recognized by two superpowers of the day, the USA, which, you know, not surprising, but also the USSR. Yeah, that's that's a part that I didn't know much about until recently. Like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. The goal of Zionism had not changed. It was dedicated to taking over as much of Palestine as possible and removing as many Palestinian villages, urban neighborhoods, and people as much as possible to create the future Zionist state. The execution was even more systematic and comprehensive than anticipated in the plan. In a matter of seven months... 531 villages were destroyed and 11 urban neighborhoods emptied. The mass expulsion of Palestinian people was accompanied by massacres, rape, and the imprisonment of males over the age of 10 in labor camps. The indigenous Palestinians succumbed to and endured massacre after massacre, rape, ethnic cleansing, torture, and looting. During and immediately following the state's creation, Israel expropriated approximately 4,245,000 acres of Palestinian land. God, that is so fucking huge. That is insane. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly, I have no words. Like, I have no response because the atrocities are just so... Like, I don't understand how people can not see this and just not feel the pain for the Palestinian people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but a lot of the time, like we were kind of talking about before, this story isn't told in very emotional terms. It's told in this very cold, sterilized, sanitized way. Um, So it's, I mean, I'm glad that you're 
feeling it and and <laughs> and emoting as you're going through this material because people need to see that and connect with that. And take your fucking time if you need to. Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's okay. You gave me a few moments to collect myself because the tears are yeah. ready to roll again. Yeah. Uh, all right. We're going to go into some uh, IOF testimony, um, the Occupation Forces testimony. Uh, this testimony was on the Palestinian village Sasa. And he goes, what happened there? We came, we entered the village planted a bomb next to each and every house. And afterward, Hamish blew a trumpet because we didn't have radios. And that was a signal for our forces to leave. We're running in reverse. The sappers stay. They pull. It's all primitive. They light the fuse. They pull the detonator. And all those houses are gone. So just blowing up all the Palestinian houses. And it's because they want to make sure that the people that they're displacing don't have a place to go back to. Exactly. Another IOS soldier's testimony. It was necessary for there to be no place for them to return to. So I mobilized all the engineering battalions of Central Command. And within 48 hours, I I knocked all those villages to the ground. Period. There's no place to return to. Oh, my fucking God. Exactly what you said. Like, you foresaw it. (laughs) This is fucking insane. Yeah. Ugh. Like, and that's just the sheer magnitude of the destruction. So, so systematic, so fucking targeted. They had no problem doing that. Well, they dehumanized the Palestinians to such an extent that when you dehumanize someone, you can commit atrocities against them. You're not committing human rights abuses if you don't see them as human. They're not humans. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. All right. And this is from another... IOF. This was a letter. This was in Safsaf. 52 Mm -hmm. Palestinian men were caught. The IOF tied them to one another, dug a pit in the ground and shot them. 10 Palestinian men were still twitching. Palestinian Mm -hmm. women came and begged for mercy. 61 bodies were found. Six bodies were of elderly men. Three cases of rape. One of one girl of 14, was raped and then murdered. From one of the men, the IOF cut off his finger with a knife just to take the ring. Yosef Neshmani is the director of the Jewish National Fund. And this is important because this person committed these atrocities and then was involved in the Jewish National Fund, which is currently ethnically cleansing Palestinians. Wow. Wow. So you see how connected this is. That these people that committed these atrocities not only ended up in the IDF or IOF, as we say, um, not only ended up as prime ministers of Israel. Yeah. Uh But also ended up in the Jewish National Fund, where they are continuously ethnically cleansing the indigenous Palestinians. Uh, I mean... All right. We've got another IOF testimony before we start running through several massacres. Now, we can't go through all of the massacres that were committed in 1948. Um, Which Lee tried to outline for us so that we could go through. She did it all in a spreadsheet, which was 
incredibly meticulously composed with every single year included. There's no human way to tell that story and make it something that we can digest and like just hear the ongoing, just a, one massacre after another massacre after another massacre after another. So, yeah. I mean, the fact that she had to put them all on a spreadsheet says yeah. something. <laughs> Fuck. Ugh. So true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and she's saving you. She's sparing you guys a lot of the details that we just, we can't fit in here. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, in their words, a month ago, we toured Ramen. The Bedouin in the Mohila area came to us with their flocks and their families and asked us to break bread with them. I replied that we had a great deal of work to do, and I didn't have time. In our visit this week, we headed towards Mohila again. Instead of the Bedouins and their flocks, there was deathly silence. Scores of camel carcasses were scattered in the area. We learned that three days earlier, the IDF had screwed the Bedouin and their flocks were destroyed. The camels by shooting, the sheep with grenades... One of the Bedouin who started to complain was killed and the rest fled. Wow. Two weeks earlier, they'd been ordered to stay where they were for the time being. Afterward, they were ordered to leave. And to speed things up, 500 heads were slaughtered. The expulsion was executed efficiently. They won't go unless we've screwed their flocks. A young girl of about 16 approached us. She had a beaded necklace of brass snakes. We tore the necklace and each of us took a bead for a souvenir. I'm glad that you're including some of these details because it does make it so much more alive. You know, you can see that girl and her necklace and imagine all the other horrible things. It's so fucking insane. In many places, the Israeli army is touted as one of the most humane armies um, you know, that, that is, I've, I've heard that many places that they're supposed to be such a shining example of a well-trained and humane army. And, th- and to read these details, the things that they were doing, it shows you how fucking much of a lie that is. And the worst part is, it's not what they were doing, it's what they're still doing. They're yeah. still yeah. doing this to Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to go through a couple more massacres during the Nakba of 1948. Mm-hmm. So, the Abu Shusha massacre. The village was attacked by the Kiryati Brigade during Operation Barak. During the attack, a soldier was reported to have attempted to rape a 20-year-old female prisoner twice. We have documentation, and it states... A soldier of Kiryati Brigade captured 10 men and 2 women. All were killed except a young woman who was raped and disposed of. At the dawn of 14 May, units of Givati Brigade assaulted Abu Shusha village. Fleeing villagers were shot on sight. Others were killed in the streets or axed to death. Some were lined up against a wall and executed. No men were left. Women had to bury the dead. This is like a fucking nightmare. This is like a horror movie, you know, people being axed to death by military occupation forces. Like, what the fuck? 
<sighs> yeah. Yeah. In the Lina Massacre, Operation Danny, which ultimate goal during the war was to gain control of the road to Jerusalem. Kenneth Bilby was in the city at the time, and he wrote, This Israeli jeep raced into Lydia with rifles, stands, and submachine guns blazing. It coursed through the main streets, blasting at everything that moved. The corpses of Arab men, women, and even children were strewn about the streets in the wake of this ruthlessly brilliant charge. The raid lasted 47 minutes, leaving 100 to 150 Palestinian Arabs dead. Wow. 47 (sighs) minutes. That's so fucking insane. I don't even, yeah, so much of this is, like, impossible for me to even envision. Like, I don't, I don't know how to even conceive of it in my head. (sighs) It's, I, I, I'm still, even though I've gone through this time and time again, I'm still speechless at the atrocities that these people could commit and be okay with it and sleep at night. And even after 1948, still continued the ethnic cleansing and join the IDF or the IOF um, and continued to commit atrocities. Yeah. Yeah. Gelber described what followed as probably the bloodiest massacre of the war. Kelman ordered troops to shoot at any clear target, including at anyone seen on the streets. Israeli soldiers threw grenades into houses they suspected snipers were hiding in. Residents who ran out of their homes in a panic were shot. Cohen, an IDF officer, said around 250 people died between 1130 and 1400 hours. Mm. So what is that? That's 2.5 hours. So in 2.5 hours, they killed 250 Palestinians. Wow. In 2013... Palmic soldiers present on the scene provided testimony and stated he himself, amid the shellings of a mosque, had fired a Piat anti-tank missile with enormous shockwave impact uh, inside the mosque where Palestinians were taking refuge in. the fuck? And on examining it afterwards, found that the walls were scattered with the remains of people. He also stated that anyone straying from the flight trail was shot dead. If you're like an adherent of Islam and you're hearing about this happening to other adherents of Islam, other Muslim people, I mean, how is this not supposed to inflame all of the relationships with all of the Arab countries across the Middle East? Like how much you would identify with these people hiding from this regime in in a mosque and then being just obliterated like uh, it, this is just stoking the fire of so much other tension and so much other conflict. But not only a mosque, imagine if it was a church, imagine if it was a yeah. temple, you know, yeah. these people are taking refuge in this place of worship only to be slaughtered. Yeah. Ugh. According to Morris, dozens died in the mosque, including unarmed men, women and children. An eyewitness published a memoir in 1998 saying he had removed 95 bodies from just one of the mosques. Mm. Oh, my God. And here's the most, eh, not the most, but here's another messed up part. Dr. Klaus Dreyer of the 
IDF or IOF Medical Corps complained on July 15th, three days later, that there were still corpses lying around in Lida, which constituted as a health hazard and a moral and aesthetic issue. Ugh. Fuck me. Like, the, the, that's just like, they're just worried about the optics of this. It's not like even aesthetic is a concern here. It's just that they're like, this doesn't play well for her <laughs> on an international stage. We got to clean this up, people. <laughs> Fuck. Exactly. <sighs> and this is, in the end, this is what Israel cares about. And this is what the Zionist occupation cares about is just how they look to the international community and changing the narrative to fit their needs and painting the Palestinians as the aggressors, as the stubborn people, as the terrorists. Meanwhile, yeah. what Israel has been doing to the Palestinian people is terrorism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is the last massacre we're going to discuss, but there were so many more massacres. Yeah, yeah. The Al-Dawaima massacre occurred after the town was occupied by the IOS 89th Commando Battalion. IOF troops fired indiscriminately for over an hour, during which time many fled. On returning the following day with other villagers, 60 bodies were found in the mosque, mostly elderly men. Numerous corpses of men, women, and children lay in the streets. 80 bodies of men, women, and children were then found in the entrance of El Zag Cavern, according to an IDF soldier. Okay, so this is an IDF IOF soldier testimony. Mm -hmm. The first wave of conquerors killed about 80 to 100 men, women, and children. Mm. The children they killed by breaking their heads with sticks. There was not a house without dead. One commander ordered his men to put two old women in the house and blow it up. The fuck? Like, what threat are they? Like, what the fuck? One soldier boasted that he had raped a woman and then shot her. One woman with a baby in her arms was employed to clean the courtyard where the soldiers ate. She worked a day or two, and in the end, they shot her and her baby. This is only the tip of the iceberg on the atrocities Zionists and Israel has committed in order to take Palestine from the Palestinians. From our present vantage point, there is no escape from defining the Israeli and Zionist actions in the Palestinian countryside as war crimes. Indeed, as a crime against humanity. If one ignores this hard fact, one will never understand what lies behind Israel's attitudes and the Zionist attitudes towards Palestine and the Palestinians as a political system and a society. Mm -hmm. The crimes committed by the leadership of the Zionist movement, which became the government of Israel, was that of ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing is any action by an ethnic group meant to drive out another ethnic group with the purpose of transforming a mixed ethnic region into a pure one. Such an action amounts to ethnic cleansing regardless of the means employed to obtain it from persuasion and threats to expulsions and mass killings. The atrocities and ethnic cleansing were so barbaric 
that Israel has concealed the testimony from IOF generals about the killings of the Palestinian civilians and the demolitions of villages, as well as documentation of the expulsion of the Bedouin during the first day, decade of statehood. As in, Israel kept all this concealed. They tried to hide it. They tried to make it so that they could change the narrative. Rewrite history. Rewrite history, exactly. Even the Israeli staff of the security department had treated the archives as their property, in some cases threatening the directors themselves. They were trying to keep the Nakba, the War of 1948, all of the massacres that Israel committed against the indigenous Palestinians as secret. And you can see this because how many people actually discussed this, actually discussed this genocide, this ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. But then, and when you do... And then the Zionists show up and deny that it happened. There's all these like fucking, all this genocide denial, all of this ethnic cleansing denial that happens. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And, but there are a lot of people that were in the Israeli occupying forces who have been speaking up, right? Breaking the Silence is an IOF group who are exposing Israel for their crimes The shameful lesson that was learned is that one can, as a state, expel half of a country's population and destroy half of its villages with impunity and commit atrocities beyond imagination and no one will be brought to justice. The idea that the Palestinians left voluntarily is not the only false assumption associated with the 1948 war. There are several others that are often aired to explain away the events of that year. One is that the Palestinians are to be blamed for what happened to them since they rejected the UN partition plan of November 1947. This allegation ignores the colonialist nature of the Zionist movement. What is clear is that the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians can in no way be justified as a punishment for their rejecting a UN peace plan that was created without any consultation with the Palestinian people themselves. Yeah. yeah. Like, how can you justify genocide and ethnic cleansing because the Palestinians didn't want to cut up a country? They didn't want to have other nations deciding who was going to take over their lands and fucking expel them. Like, ugh, it's insane. Contrary to the myth, that the Palestinians continuously refused peace. It was actually the Israelis and the Zionist occupation that constantly rejected the offers that were on the table. The documents show that the Israeli state never extended a hand of peace in the aftermath of the war with the Palestinians. In fact, an inflexible Israeli leadership clearly refused to enter into any negotiations over the future of Palestine or consider the return of the people who had been expelled or had to flee the land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While Arab governments and Palestinian leaders were willing to participate in a new and more reasonable UN peace initiative, the Israeli leadership turned a blind eye when in September 1948, Zionist terrorists assassinated the United Nations peace mediator. That blew my fucking mind when I heard that, like, the... Gall to to attack a UN mediator 
If you want to look like the worst of the worst on the planet, that's how you do it. With impunity. Nothing happened. Oh my god. So, right? Israel and the Zionist occupation further rejected any new proposals for peace adopted by the body that replaced the UN mediator. As new negotiations commenced at the end of 1948. Uh, the United Nations General Assembly adopted Resolution 194 in 1948, resolving that refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practicable date. And the compensation should be paid for the property of those choosing not to return and for the loss of or damage of property which, under principles of international law or equity, should be made good by the governments or authorities responsible. So this resolution has three recommendations. Renegotiation of the partition of Palestine in a way that would better fit the demographic realities on the ground, the full and unconditional return of all refugees, and the internationalization of Jerusalem or Al-Quds. To this day, Israel rejects the United Nations resolutions. Israel continued their ethnic cleansing of Palestinians by other means after the 1948 Nakba. There have been well-known landmarks in this process. The expulsion of more villagers between 1948 and 1956 from Israel uh, the forced transfer of 300,000 Palestinians from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip during the 1967 Six-Day War, a very measured but constant cleansing of Palestinians from the greater Jerusalem area, uh, more than 250,000 people, Palestinian people by uh, the year 2000, the forced eviction of indigenous Palestinians for the continued implementation of illegal Zionist settlements, the continued forced demolition of Palestinian homes, the current ethnic cleansing in Al-Naqab, which Israel has ethnically cleansed the name to be the Negev, the continued erasure of Palestinian names in replacement for Zionist names based on a Bible. Even Al-Quds was renamed by the Zionist organization to be Jerusalem. The continued bombardment of the Gaza Strip, which we saw in 2014 and in May of 2021, and so much more. Mm -hmm. Israel's policy of ethnic cleansing took many forms and is taking many forms. In various parts of the occupied territories and inside Israel, the policy of expulsion was replaced by a prohibition on people leaving their villages or neighborhoods. Restricting Palestinians to where they lived served the same purpose as expelling them. When they are besieged in enclaves, such as the West Bank, or in villages and neighborhoods in Jerusalem that are declared part of the West Bank, or in the Gaza Ghetto, they are not counted demographically in either official or informal censuses, which is what matters to the Israeli policymakers more than anything else. Basically, to not count Palestinians, period. Mm -hmm. As for the democracy of Israel... Only certain Palestinians have voting rights. Zionists and Jewish people are treated differently than Palestinians in nearly every aspect of life, including housing, education, healthcare, employment, 
residence, and freedom of movement. Zionist Israeli settlers are governed by Israeli civil law, while Palestinians are governed by military law. Israel has even banned the use of the word Nakba in schools and textbooks. Israel has made the commemoration of Nakba Day a criminal offense, subject to a year in prison and a fine of 10,000 Israeli shekels or 3,220 US dollars. Oh my God. Uh, That kind of shit, like you, the blatant silencing of this shit is so atrocious. It fucking boils my blood. Like uh, it makes, it gives me more resolve though to like, put this content out there to to share this narrative to share the story that you've been so good at putting together because fuck if that's what the, those are the lengths that they're willing to go to, through to deny all this shit then we have to do what we can to really get the real story out there Ugh. and that's why it's amazing that you are even producing this podcast on palestine because uh as you saw with the zionists they tried to silence you right away yeah. Hoping yeah. to get the first episode pulled and, and I'm sure, scare you into ever thinking about uh, Palestine again. I know. And, and you know, I, I didn't think that that might be an actual goal of the harassment at first. But then after you mentioned it, I was like, that probably is literally what they were hoping for, that we would just back away from the topic entirely and feel like it's too messy. Uh, like, I don't want to take sides now because look at all this mess, you know? And and this is what they do. This is their normal behavior. They berate and harass anyone who stands on, uh, you know, pro-human rights, pro-Palestinian human rights. Uh, they try their best to silence you with those very specific words, you know, anti-Semite, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism, even though mm-hmm. you are advocating for the human rights of Semitic people. Yeah. Oh, God. Well summed up. Oh, my God. Well, luckily, the story of Palestine is not over. As the water makes its way through the cracks of the oppression, it is only a matter of time before the water breaks down the walls of apartheid and creates a stream to the home of every Palestinian, carrying the key to their return. Uh, Oh, my God. That metaphor I will carry with me for the rest of my life of of water reclaiming anything that you design in engineering. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's so Even beautiful. once all humans are gone. Lee, I just want to thank you so much for coming back on the show to tell this next part of this very, very heavy and intense and difficult story. Uh, you've done such an incredible job of humanizing this horrific crisis that is unfolding to this day. Um, And you really have put it into perspective in a way that is relatable to folks in the U.S., folks all around the world, um, you know, relating to kind of our our common shared humanity. Um, And so, yeah, I'm just I'm in such awe of you and what you've been able to do with this story. So thank you so goddamn much. And I was hoping that maybe you could um, offer us a little bit of a preview of what we're going to hear in the last chapter of this story. Well, thank you for having me back. And for next week and our final chapter, we will be doing the history of Palestine and the occupation of Israel 
um, from 1948 to present day, so including the Six Day War, the Oslo Accords, um, the 2014 Gaza War, and uh, also the 2021 uh, Gaza Massacre. We will also be covering um, the apartheid that the Palestinian people are currently enduring, as they have been mm-hmm. enduring since you know 1948. We will mm-hmm. also be covering the human rights abuses by the occupation that have all been well documented. And we will also be covering how this all connects to capitalism. Yep. Uh, some of the financial motivations, financial interests that are underlying this alliance of power with um, the U.S. and Israel. So, um, yeah, that's that's gonna be a that's gonna be a good one, and it's really gonna give people an understanding of how all this stuff that you've been hearing it truly is ongoing. I mean, a lot of the atrocities, of the a lot of the horrors that that Lee touched upon are things that you will recognize in what has been happening within the last couple of years over there. So if you tune into that one, you'll really have a good understanding of the current situation in Palestine. Thanks to Lee for coming back on the show. We're looking forward to seeing her next week. Uh, thank you to Dreamweaver, that's D-R-M-W-V-R, for the use of our theme song. And thanks to our new patrons, Eric, Clara, Whitney, and Equalizer. Uh, you guys are helping continue to make the show possible. So thank you very much. We appreciate it. And we'll see you next week for the conclusion to the story of Palestine. Palestine.